dialogue about why politics fails with Ben Ansel, one of the world's leading experts on the dilemmas facing modern democracies. Why are democracy, quality, equity, solidarity, security, and prosperity for all so hard uh, in democracy? Why do we continue on the path of self-destruction, certainly in this country, despite all the road signs warning us that we are headed in the wrong direction? We can't seem to make a U-turn. We'll talk about that and more right now that uh, Ben Ansel joins us. Ben, good to have you on the program. How are you today, sir? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Typhus, and thank you for such an excellent uh, description of the book. Oh, no, no. It's my great honor to have you, and uh, I'm glad we've got time uh, to talk about Why Politics Fails, the new book by uh, Ben Ansel. Um, before I get into that, uh, Connie Rice, uh, a brilliant uh, uh, contributor to this program, was just on in our first hour, and we were talking about the fact talking about our democracy, of course, but talking about the fact that both Connie and I believe that in this country, um, we are, we are, we have an experiment in democracy. We have a sort of Madisonian framework for democracy. We haven't quite perfected that as yet. And so this is an experiment in democracy for many of us. For others, it's already a plutocracy. It's an oligarchy. We've long passed the notion of being a democracy. Let me just start by asking um, whether or not the word democracy uh, in this country, and for that matter, around the globe, um, is overused, used out of context. You, you, you tell me how how you frame the use of our of that term, democracy, in real time. Yeah, you've you've highlighted the the fact that when people talk about democracy in America, uh, they do so much of the time stating that it's it's not it's not what we think of when we think of democracy at heart, right? Mm-hmm. It somehow seems to be shifting away from a rule by the people to either a rule by the rich or with some kind of tyranny of the minority of um, in the way that the Senate, for example, is structured that allows, you know, Wyoming to have as many senators as California. So there are, there are all kinds of um, difficulties in, in looking at the American democratic context right now and saying this is exactly what we all mean at heart when we're talking about democracy, right, rule of the people, because mm-hmm. it seems in many ways we're a long way from that. But, but I do want to draw back a bit and say the, um, that I think the health of democracy in America is not great right now, but it has pr- proved a little bit more resilient than, um, than you might have thought. Uh, we did avoid an actual insurrection turning into continued authoritarianism under Donald Trump. I think that was uh, that that showed that the Madisonian parts of the system that you talk about, mm-hmm. the courts and Congress, were able to push back. Um, I do think that uh, there is a very vibrant kind of grassroots democracy in America uh, in terms of you know, everything from ballot initiatives through to electoral reform throughout, you know, American cities. I used to live in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. right? We changed the electoral system for the mayor there. So, you know, there's lots of good news, but America is a big and complex place, and there are lots of democracies in America, right? Yep. There's democracies at the local level, at the mm-hmm. state level, and at the national level. Yeah. Um, there are those um, listening right now, I suspect, who, who uh, uh, share this sentiment, that many um, um, express uh, in a variety of places that America, frankly, has no business whatsoever. We ain't got no business trying to export democracy around the world. Uh, I've traveled around the world. 
Uh, and when you look at, at our country from the outside, somebody once said you can't really appreciate the parade uh, when you're on the float. You can't see the parade when you're on the float. Uh, I put it this way. Mm-hmm. It, it's, every year I, I fight, uh, and, and it's been tough the last few years given what I've been uh, doing and what's on my plate with this with this, uh, with this my work. Um, but it, it, it's, it's, for me, important to get outside of America every year to look back on it um, for two reasons. One, it allows me to appreciate the country in ways that I that I can't on the inside. But it also allows me to better critique the country in ways that I cannot necessarily from the inside, particularly when I'm in dialogue with others about the way they see our democracy. And around the globe, particularly given what we saw happen during the Trump era, there are many uh, in this country and certainly globally who think that America has no business whatsoever trying to export democracy around the world, given all the drama that we have endured and are enduring, even in real time. I want to get Ben Ansel's uh, take on that notion of America needing to sit down. Somebody said America ought to take a, a, a few seats. Just sit down and shut up. You ain't got no business trying to tell nobody else about democracy. Y'all ain't got it right in America yet, and the Trump era, again, underscores that. We'll get Ben's take on that and a great deal more. Just getting started, talking in this hour about why politics fails with Ben Ansel on Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive. progressive, unapologetically black. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. Ben Ansel's new text is called Why Politics Fails. We're going to talk about uh, why uh, uh, democracy uh, and politics are so uh, so on the uh, on live support, if I can put it that way, these days. Uh, but being that, that the point I made a moment ago, that I want to get your temperature on, take your temperature on this notion that that many uh, feel and believe that America really is uh, a bit hubristic. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's sort of uh, full of hubris uh, to be trying to export democracy around the globe in a moment like this. Uh, one could argue. And I would, in fact, argue that the greatest cultural exports this country has ever given the world, uh, jazz, blues, hip hop, and all that comes, of course, from the black community. So we we stick our chest out about that. We've given the world uh, the greatest exports uh, this country has ever has ever shared. Uh, but on that list, of course, has to be democracy when done right. But in a moment like this, uh, you know, certainly in the in the Trump era, there are many who believe that we just have no business uh, sticking our chest out about our democracy. What say you? Yeah, first off, it it obviously looks pretty hypocritical when America's been going through a tough time with its own democracy to go and tell everybody else how to do things. And if you look at the experience of Iraq and Afghanistan under American occupation and what happened to their political systems afterwards, it also does not look encouraging. And I think at root, it's because democracy is about ruling yourselves. And it's very hard to go and tell other people, hey, here's how we think you should rule yourself. <laughs> right? And that's why democracy is organic. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and this is a, what, 215-year, you know, nearly 250-year experience of American democracy that America has still not got right. And let me tell you, I'm in the UK right now, and we like, we like to tell stories about centuries of democracy. Mm-hmm. And if anyone's been following British politics on your show over the last few years, they'll know that we have we have not been able to make decisions very effectively either, right? Mm-hmm. So it's always a learning process. You talked about our great national experiments, right? But those experiments are ongoing. So it's understandable, you know, if you're looking abroad, that people would not find it convincing when we have not perfected it to try and impose it. I, I want to say one thing, though, which is that America did have two great moments of imposing democracy abroad. And maybe that's what makes us 
think that it can be done again, and that's Germany and Japan after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Right? So those are very stable democratic systems today. They were both occupied by the Americans, and good choices were made. Unfortunately, since that point, it's very hard to think of a, you know, getting it right again. Right? So maybe, maybe we got lucky that time. Maybe there was something else in Germany and Japan that made it possible. I think no one is going to be interested right now in taking lessons from the United States, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that they can't become democracies themselves. Right, but you got to want to do it yourself. Yep. So, so, so let me let me probe that. I find that fascinating. Why then mm-hmm. um, did our um, our uh, experiment with Germany and Japan helping to establish their democracies work so well, and why we've we been coming up so short of late? And by of late, I mean for some years now, some 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 uh, some decades now. Yeah, you could say it might be the Cold War, right? Mm-hmm. So that there was. You know, you were under Germany and Japan were under the American security umbrella. They had U.S. troops stationed in them. Right. They still do, uh, although fewer than they had. Uh, and you know, the, the constitutions the Americans imposed in those countries just seemed to work in those countries. You know, they weren't perfect. The Japanese had the same political party running Japan from the 40s to the 1990s. Right. Mm. So it wasn't that democratic, but it was it was stable. I think the problem is our adventures since the 1990s have been after the fall of the Soviet Union, and there's not been any any kind of reason for countries that America has has invaded or occupied to play nice because the alternative is is much worse, right? And I think you know being dominated by the Soviets turned out pretty badly mm. for most places as well. But we're not in that world right now. Yeah. Um, when you when you name this book and I want to go right inside the text now, when you when you title mm-hmm. this book, Why Politics Fails, unpack the title for me. Why is that the title? Uh, it's, you know, it's the title because my publishers are much smarter people than me. <laughs> <laughs> they, they immediately thought, hey, yeah. this is what you're writing about. Mm-hmm. But what I was focused about initially was these traps I talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. So there's a democracy trap and a quality trap and so on. Mm-hmm. And each of these traps is something about our self-interest as individuals somehow kind of butting up against each other and preventing us collectively from getting the goals we want, right? So that's the theme. If you read the book, you'll find throughout. And that's the kind of easy answer as to why politics fails. But let me give you a kind of more subtle answer, which is that that's inevitable. We are going to butt up against each other, right? We do disagree on things. We don't want to pay for things that we need and so on. Mm-hmm. But it, we at least have to accept that, right? We have to design our political institutions around that to make sense of it rather than thinking that with some kind of technology or some kind of strong leader, we can magic those problems away. We, re- we really can't. So I guess the big story I want people to take from the book is that politics fails if you pretend that you can do without it, mm-hmm. right? It would be even worse to, to not exercise our democratic votes. It's annoying to do so, right? We butt up against each other. But that's how we get things done. Yeah. I, I, re- I remember reading a book many years ago. Um, he's now um, uh, transitioned. He's deceased. But uh, Mario Cuomo, um, um, long-term mm-hmm. governor of New York, um, uh, mm-hmm. was, a, was a brilliant orator, as you know, and um, a great, great writer and, and a pretty good governor for the, for the, for the three terms he had. Uh, as governor of uh, the Empire State, he wrote a book many years ago called "Reason to Believe," and I, that book is still on my mm-hmm. shelf uh, to this day. And in this in this book, "Reason to Believe," he, he really took on this notion, Ben, of how we define. And let me just back up: how we even have a conversation about how we define the proper role of government. 
everybody in this country and for that matter around the globe, people believe in governments and they believe that government has a proper role to play. The debate, of course, comes in in this country, uh, certainly right about now, as to what the proper role of government ought to be. So let me ask broadly what you what you make of that debate, that conversation, how we get to uh, a, a meaningful dialogue about what the proper role of government should be. We're talking about why politics fails, but I'm just taking a step back to talk about, again, the fact that we all need government for certain things in our lives. Republicans want to do certain things. Democrats want to do certain things. We can't agree on that, but everybody agrees that there is a proper role for government to play. How do you get at that? I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Mario Cuomo was also an inspirational leader, like you know, like the Kennedys he was related to like Barack Obama, like Ronald Reagan, arguably, in that he was able to come up with a vision that I think attracted people to, to look beyond themselves, right? I mean, Kennedy is famous, ask not what your state can do for you speech, right? Mm-hmm. It's right into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so in part, the answer to your question is most of the time, you know, we, we look at the world around us and we, and we worry about, you know, in the United Kingdom, we worry about traffic, and collection of garbage, right? Like for most people, that's the day-to-day role of politics and they don't look beyond that. Uh, They don't like paying taxes. They do like getting benefits. That's more or less it. And I do think that these figures who can inspire us to to a greater picture of what government can do are important for politics, but they don't always last. And and sometimes they believe their own hype. Mm. I I think arguably the Obama era is, is a little bit, of Barack sometimes going to the Republican Party saying, look, I'm arguing in good faith and I'm going to expose your bad faith and somehow that's going to make you change your mind. And it never mm-hmm. did, right? The, being a charismatic guy with the best intentions, uh, having a vision for what America should look like. You remember the red state, blue state speech, right? Sure, but sure, that's sure, not sure. where we ended up. Well, that's we right. ended up with even redder states and bluer states. Uh, and so... You know, I think there's a sort of difference in the Cuomo world of vision and maybe the Joe Biden world of a much more transactional politics. Um, and and it's, I think it's a challenge for anyone who studies politics to figure out which is a better which is a better outcome. Do you want people to inspire but get stuck like John F. Kennedy or Barack? Or do you want people to get things done but piss a lot of people off mm-hmm. like Lyndon Johnson or Joe Biden? Yeah. No, it's it's. I, I see the frame that you're putting us in. It's uh, it's uh, it's a frame that I I, I want to just marinate on for a second as we as we move forward here. Um, <clears throat> in your book, uh, Why Politics Fails, as you mentioned, there are these traps uh, that you sort of unpack. Um, and I want to just kind of walk through a few of them and have you uh, unpack how mm-hmm. and why you define these things as traps um, to the collective goals of democracy, equality, solidarity, security, prosperity, etc. So um, I'll let you choose. But talk to, talk to me about some of these traps that you that you detail in the text. Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the traps, let's begin with democracy. So for Mm -hmm. me, the big trap in democracy is if we don't have enough organization um, around what we want, and most of us have pretty disparate, diverse views about things, we can often end up not making any decisions at all. Mm -hmm. So that's what I call chaos. Uh, I think any of your listeners who followed the Brexit debate in, in the United Kingdom will remember how we had this big decision that looked like a clear decision to leave the European Union, and then we couldn't do it for three or four years because mm-hmm. we kept on circling around different ways of doing stuff. Right? So that's one outcome. But the other is the one that I think characterizes American politics right now, which is one of polarization. And that's where we, we do have kind of coherent views, but we've become so negatively 
um, ionized, right, against the other side of the political debate, that, that we can't get anything done because we hate each other so much. Um, and so in democratic politics, in some ways, always weaving between these two points, right? It's, it's hard to um, sometimes to make decisions at all. But then when we can finally find stuff where we're for or against it, then we find ourselves polarizing very quickly. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in your mind to be done about the polarization? I mean, it's one of those topics that everybody discusses. Um, there's, there's, there's great conversation always about how polarized our politics are, and yet nobody seems to have a solution. I'm not sure I do either, but to your mind, anything to be done about the polarization, which, again, is one of these traps that you talk about in the text? Yeah, so one way to think about why we have polarization in America is because sometimes we have too much democracy. So think about primaries. Um, primaries are great moments of democracy where you really get a say as to who should lead your political party. But the group of people who go to primaries tends to be much more partisan than the average person. And Mm. so then we end up with leaders diverging. You know, in the States, I think it's really more with the Republican Party, but you can see it within the Democratic Party as well. Right. So just increasing the amount of things we vote on, kind of like turning the volume knob up on democracy, isn't going to reduce polarization. Talking to each other might, but we're not doing a great job of that on social media, right? So mm-hmm. if I exchange on Twitter or X or whatever it's called this week uh, with somebody <laughs> I disagree with, pretty quickly we end up screaming and shouting at each other in 256 characters. Um, and so I don't think distancing people so they can't see each other and the interact with technology helps. It does mean that maybe getting people together in citizens' assemblies or, you know, frankly, encouraging people to volunteer and do things like you know, serve on the PTA, right? I was a school governor with people from different political parties. That ultimately is how you get people to move past these disagreements uh, and, and come up with some more novel ideas. The problem is it's a lot of work, mm-hmm. right? This is what Oscar Wilde said about socialism. It takes up too many evenings, right? <laughs> and politics can take up a lot of evenings. <laughs> No, I, 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 I hear that. Uh, Why Politics Fails is the name of the book by uh, Ben Ansel. We're talking in this hour about some of the traps that get in the way uh, that keep politics from working for us as opposed to working against us. Just talk about democracy. Let's talk about equality, Ben. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, inequality, I spend a lot of time at the start of that chapter talking about this, what feels like a paradox, which is that billionaires in America are wealthier than they've ever been before, right? We have... Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk in their own private space race, right? And the space race used to be between mm-hmm. governments, yep. not just really rich guys. Um, but you may remember back in 2019 in the Democratic presidential primaries, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both talked about a wealth tax on Americans with wealth over something like $10 million, mm-hmm. right? So pretty rich people. Uh, and that was a total non-starter, right? So it didn't come up under Biden. Um, and you know, doesn't seem any, any any real chance of that net wealth tax appearing anytime soon. And it's kind of surprising, right? Because it only affects about 100, 150,000 American households, and there's 150 million American voters who aren't affected by it. But we don't seem to be able to, you know, take what seems like a, a, a democratic slam dunk and turn that into an actual policy. And so, you know, some of what I do is explore why that's the case. And I've run a lot of surveys in the UK and Europe and beyond looking at how people feel about taxing wealth. And, you know, and and the answer is that people understand that they are not that wealthy and they're not going to be taxed. But there's something about taxing wealth that feels unjust to people, right? That they've already, that when you've already earned something, taxing it is taxing it twice 
or it's taxing something that would go to families, or it's taxing farms, right? That, you know, the estate tax is a tax in a lot of ways in the States. And that means it's turned out to be extraordinarily difficult to do. And so we have this kind of clash where people all want to be treated the same, right? And they don't want their wealth taxed. And so they're willing also not to have Elon Musk's wealth taxed, but they also want equal outcomes. And those things are in, you know, a clash against one another. Yeah, the, the, the problem with that argument, I hear that, uh, Ben, the problem with that argument is there's so many loopholes and so, many, so that they take advantage exactly. of. I mean, you, you recall Donald Trump bragging in the presidential debate uh, some years ago about how about how and why he didn't pay taxes and how it made him smart that he understood the tax laws Absolutely. and how to avoid paying taxes. And so for those who, who feel some sort of some sort of fidelity uh, to rich people and that they shouldn't be put upon, I, I ain't buying it. That, that, that argument uh, doesn't work for me because they find so many other ways uh, to get around the other responsibilities. Well, they that they do. And, and you know what yeah. Elon Musk said to Bernie Sanders about this? He said, yeah, go ahead. Have a wealth tax. I'll just spend down my money beforehand. There you so go. it's no tax. No, that's, and it, he can do that. No, there, are, there are always ways around it. When we come forward, though, I want to ask uh, you directly, Ben, um, how you read the role of the rich uh, in our contemporary politics. We're talking about why politics fails. And increasingly, these billionaires uh, that uh, Ben references a moment ago are getting more and more involved in our politics, many of them owning um, the media outlets that cover our politics. So they're not just involved, they're entrenched. We'll talk a great deal about that and more regarding this new book, Why Politics Fails, with Ben Answer when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. This is getting good. Tavis Smiley continues when we come forward. May Fresh Daily in the Mert Park, Los Angeles, California. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley and Ben Ansel, author of the book Why Politics Fails. Uh, we are talking in this hour about um, all things politics uh, and systems and structures and democracy and equality and solidarity and security and prosperity for all. And why these things are so hard. Uh, even after 200 plus years of trying, uh, here we are uh, still trying to get it right. Uh, this uh, thing called democracy, trying to get it right in this country, and have the nerve uh, to be trying to export it around the globe. Uh, I digress on that point, given that we've already talked about that a bit earlier in this conversation. But Ben, you made a point uh, a few moments ago that I want to come back to, and that is the the, ro- the role of the rich in our in our uh, in our democracy. Uh, these billionaires who are um, sticking their noses in places that many of us wish they weren't. Uh, many of them, of course, owning the media outlets that cover um, uh, the news that we read, be it Elon Musk uh, at X, uh, formerly Twitter, be it Jeff Bezos at uh, the Washington Post, any number of other per- persons I could point to. But, but broadly speaking, talk to me about um, the role of the rich uh, in this process and how their involvement uh, in some ways makes politics feel worse, not better. Uh, well, you're absolutely right. It does. I mean, look, all, our democracies are based on free speech, but free speech in America seems to work. The, the more dollars you put into the machine, the louder your microphone is. Uh, you know, maybe that's inevitable, right? Because mm-hmm. in the UK, millionaires and billionaires own our press too. Uh, but it means that we're, we're hearing a series of very lucky people uh, very loudly. Uh, and those people might be conservative, as Elon Musk appears to be at least now. I'm mm-hmm. not sure how conservative he was five, ten years ago, but he's definitely radicalizing himself. Or they might be sort of liberal on some things like Jeff Bezos but uh, or you know some of the uh, ex-Facebook founders. But either way, these extremely rich people, whether they're liberal or conservative on social issues, are almost always very fiscally conservative, right? So 
you know, we might have this kind of liberal press, conservative press fighting out about so-called woke issues and culture war issues. Uh, but there's a, you know, a much, much narrower debate about economic policy, uh, about, you know, full employment, uh, about, you know, the standard of living of the average American, right? It mm-hmm. just do- doesn't get the same coverage that trans rights do or other kind of cultural hot button issues. So that's what I think we're really seeing with these, you know, wealthy liberals and conservatives, um, billionaires on the machines is, is our debate has also become narrower, right? It hasn't become about these big picture mm-hmm. items. But when William Randolph Hearst was publishing his screeds against SDR, mm-hmm. it was because he didn't want SDR to do the New Deal, right? But it seems that the debate's much, much narrower today. So I think that's part of the, the downside of the way in which extremely wealthy people owning your media just narrows the conversation that you can have. Yep. We're talking about why politics fails. Let me throw um, a couple of issues at you uh, directly, mm-hmm. uh, spe- specific issues that I want to get you to sound off on vis-a-vis this notion of why our politics continue to fail us. Here's issue number one. We've known for a long time now what needs to be done to save the world from climate disaster. We see the evidence uh, mm-hmm. everywhere. And yet we continue down this particular path of self-destruction. Here is a perfect example of politics failing us. Talk to me, Ben Ansel. Yeah, I mean, this is what I start and I end the book with, because I start the book with a New York Times article written 75 years ago, talking about global warming and talking about the likely increase in temperatures. Right. So we've known this for a long time. Uh, The science has got clearer over the years. But our ability to act on it doesn't seem to have improved a huge amount. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't want to be—I don't want to be too pessimistic, because in some ways, you know, net zero policies have appeared on the agenda in ways in the last decade that maybe they, they might not have done under different leaders, right? So even under the conservatives in the UK, you know, these kind of green new deal issues in the states and Europe. Okay, that's great. Uh, but ultimately, we're, we are not slowing down rapidly the growth in temperatures. And in part, that's because it's now increasingly hard to do because it will cost people money. And I think, you know, there's, there's a huge political challenge speaks to some of the themes in the book that no politician really wants to tell people you're going to have to pay money uh, if you want to reduce emissions or if you want to reduce carbon in some fashion. Uh, they'd rather... They'd rather do the easy stuff than the hard stuff, right? They'd rather kind of green- greenwash their politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just had an issue in the United Kingdom where the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, he expanded the zone in which emission-producing vehicles had to pay money. And the party uh, that he's a member of, the Labour Party, lost the local election based entirely on this issue that completely freaked out the party, right? This is a pretty small issue. It's like a $15 a day thing that 10% of cars would pay that scared them off, right? So I think we're at this really important moment right now. Politicians are going to have to be brave. They are going to have to maybe give with one hand while they take with another. That's something, by the way, that the Canadians have done. They've, they've had carbon taxes where they've paid back people, kind of like the, the Alaska oil money, except that you're getting it mm-hmm. uh, for mm-hmm. reducing oil, not yep. for producing Ben Ansel is one of the world's leading experts on the dilemmas facing modern democracies. His new text is called Why Politics Fails, uh, hence our wanting to be in dialogue with him in this hour. Uh, Not many people have uh, studied democracies around the globe in the way that Ben has, and and I appreciate the opportunity to speak to him. So that's climate disaster. Another issue that I want to point to right quick, on which we all have to agree that our politics continue to fail us. 
The United States, as you well know, is the richest nation in the history of the world. Um, the immense wealth in this so-called democracy should make poverty um, a historical curiosity. And yet poverty and income inequality and economic mobility uh, or immobility, as we discussed with Connie Rice in our first hour, are as real as rain. Indeed, there's data out today that we discussed earlier in this program that the poverty rate has increased for the first time in this country since 2010. Uh, the poverty rate in this country rose 4.6 percentage points in 2022. So here again, we are headed in the wrong direction in the richest nation in the history of the world. And that increase, by the way, Ben, is due directly to their, the fact that Republicans did not want to extend uh, or enhance the, the child, child tax, tax credit. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's the, mm-hmm. You know this yeah. stuff well. So so here we are now, because they didn't want to uh, care and uh, take care of our, of our precious babies, the poverty rate is once again on the rise in this country, I repeat, in the richest nation in the history of the world. Once again, our politics fail us, Ben. Yeah, I think, th- you know, this is something I lived in the States between 2000 and, uh, and 2013. Uh, and uh, so I was I was in the States for the desperate attempts to expand CHIP and mm-hmm. uh, then Obamacare, right? And so I grew up in the United Kingdom. So for, I think anybody from Europe who comes to America and sees the state of the American healthcare system and the, you know, frankly, destruction that, uh, you know, health-related bankruptcies uh, can lead to in people's lives, it's, it's just crazy, right? And, you know... It, yeah, you know, the story of poverty. You know, there's a lot of things going on, right? Some of it is government not providing support to people. Some of it is people not being able to find jobs. I think a lot of it in the American context is about the weakness of labor unions, uh, and you know, the kind of systematic legal attacks on labor unions, particularly in right-to-work states over the years. Right. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of parts to this, but I think broadly, you have the problem in the American context that one political party just doesn't care. Right. Mm. And, and from a European perspective, that's just surprising because the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom, it, it does tend to cut programs. It is associated oftentimes with higher child poverty that, you know, that's been that's been true in recent years. But it doesn't you know, kind of deep six and take away these, these programs that people depend on to quite the degree that the Republican Party is interested yeah. itself in. Uh, is it? Is it race? I think in part it must be a story about sort of racial animus driving uh, a distaste for spending on welfare. I mean, political scientists have been studying this for 30 or 40 years, and welfare payments are absolutely the most racialized thing in American politics. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, even beyond, you know, the, the kind of central role of race in American political and economic life, I think there's a broader kind of anti-labor and anti-public spending set of ideologies that are very, very hard yeah. to uh, to get over. As I mentioned, Ben, uh, ben Ansel is one of the world's leading experts on the dilemmas facing modern democracy and its democracies ideas. It seems to me, <clears throat> it seems to me that the vast majority of people in this country and around the globe want to live in societies with democratic values. And yet we are living in a moment uh, in Africa and elsewhere where democracy is receding. Why is democracy receding if we all want to live in a society with democratic values. Where's the rub? Our guest is Ben Ansel. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis Smiley. 
So, Ben, answer, there's a disconnect here for me, and I need you to help me out with this. Um, if the vast majority of folk around the globe, and certainly in this country, uh, want to live in a society with democratic values, then why in Africa, you've seen all of these stories of late, uh, in cer- certainly the southern part of the continent, um, these uh, uh, these uh, up uh, uprisings, these upheavals, these um, coup d'etats are taking place every other day. It seems, mm-hmm. and not just in Africa, but in other parts of the uh, of the globe. Um, I could I could point to this as well. Um, so if we if we say we want to live in in spaces with uh, democratic values, why around the globe is democracy receding? So I think the simple answer is democracy is really hard to do. Yeah, it's hard to do because. We're all going to disagree and there's uncertainty. And you know what's easier to do in some ways? It's hire a whole bunch of guys and have them patrol around with uniforms and guns mm-hmm. and knock heads if people don't like what you're doing. I mean, in a way, that's, that's an easy way to have a stable system for a while. And it's quite hard for uh, democracies, particularly in poorer countries, to respond to groups of you know, armed dudes who are doing just that. In, in some ways, that's what's just happened in Mali and in Niger is, uh, you know, these are pretty weak states already. When they have democratically elected politicians, the cops are easy to bribe, the soldiers are easy to bribe. Quite often the coups happen because a bunch of soldiers who are protecting the president suddenly decide they don't want to do that anymore, mm-hmm. and it would be a lot easier to, uh, to sort of turf them out. Uh, and, you know, that, that's been happening for, for decades and decades, but it's been happening a lot recently. And I, you know, arguably the reason for that is because the Russians have been involved in, in that part of the world um, with the Wagner group. You may remember their leader mm-hmm. was the guy who just died in a mysterious plane crash uh, who, just after he tried to oust Putin. Yeah, not, 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 really, not, 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 re- <laughs> not really that mysterious if you're paying attention. It's not really that mysterious, but I, but I digress. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so Mr. Prigozhin and his armed groups in the Wagner group would go and they would train, uh, you know, groups of soldiers in, in Mali and in Chad and other parts of Africa. So there, there are genuine bad actors out there as well who don't care for democracy and who, you know, exploit some people's desire for power in regions like that. But, you know, let me just say that democracy is still really popular. I mean, you alluded to this earlier right if it's so popular around the world why does this keep happening you know the good news is that people aren't turning away from it even in dictatorships Mm -hmm. you find that the idea of ruling yourself is still really popular even though people obviously acknowledge that that may not be what's happening and and the places where democracy is becoming we're becoming less confident in our own ability to rule ourselves are places like the states or france and you know I, i do think we have problems right in 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 europe and in america but we shouldn't be too despondent and we shouldn't kind of give up the argument to the alternatives because the alternatives are people employed by Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping. And it's not clear to me that they have the best interest no. of people in poorer countries point around well, the world. Point well taken, point well taken. When we come forward in our remaining moments with Ben Ansel, um, he mentioned moments ago this notion of, um, of of unions and this anti-union sentiment that persists. Hence, you see all of these strikes that are happening in this country and, for that matter, around the globe. There are strikes. Um, why, uh, in the context of our politics failing us, uh, why are our politics so anti-union? That's that's a, a conundrum for many of us, even all these years later, that our politics are so anti-union. Why? We'll talk about that when we uh, uh, come forward with Ben Ansel on Tavis Smiley. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Rank number 45 on the heavy hundred list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds, Sounds different. different, huh? 
This is Tavis Smiley. We talked earlier in this hour, Ben Ansel, about a number of ways in which our politics fail us. The name of uh, Ben's book is called Why Politics Fails. We talked about the climate disaster. We talked about poverty and income inequality and economic immobility. Uh, we talked about democratic values. And one of those values, it seems to me, on uh, which we are still struggling, um, is uh, the values that unions bring to this country and other societies around the globe. Um, so uh, in the context of why our politics fail us, why are we still so anti-union? Uh, not, no, not necessarily in our political discourse, but in the way we move politically when it comes to public policy. Yeah, sorry. So in some ways, it's not surprising that people might be anti-labor unions because when unions strike, it's inconvenient. And there's something potentially about, you know, in right to work states where people can work in an industry without joining a union, that seems fairer and more voluntary to people. But of course, it, it totally undermines what the union can do. So for unions to be successful and for people to understand why unions are helpful rather than just causing them grief through strikes or somehow restricting people. They have to see them in action. right? And I think what happened in America since the 30s is this just long decline in people knowing a union member, in being obviously being a union member, in seeing unions get things for their employees. And I just think what's so in, invigorating about the last few years is we've seen big successes in the least likely places, right, in Starbucks and Amazon, right? In the L.A. Uh, hotel workers strike, right, over the last few weeks, getting Leo Messi to shift hotel and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it does seem like there's a cultural shift. And, and in a way, you kind of have to see the success that unions bring to ignore, you know, the kind of you know, the, the downsides that people might associate with them. So in a sense, it's a big cultural shift uh, in the public mind is what's needed. Mm -hmm. And I can see that starting to happen. Yep. Um, you can tell by the accent uh, that Ben Ansel was born and raised in the UK. Um, but his, uh, his PhD is uh, in, in government, in fact, is from Harvard uh, in a place you, called Cambridge. You know, Tavis, I yeah. was born in, and I was born in California. Are you, are you, are you born <laughs> in California? Uh, okay. In okay. I am a Californian. Yeah. All right. Well, but I, it did not take the accent as a song. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you might have been born here, but being raised there, the California <laughs> accent. I, I'm not hearing the California <laughs> accent right. as I sit in California right about now. Um, let me close in the yeah, 90 seconds not. I have left with this. I was saying you got your PhD from Harvard. Um, so let me, uh, let me close this uh, mm -hmm. in 90 seconds. Um, why is it uh, so hard to get and keep the world that we say we want uh you know it's it's hard because politics is hard and democracy is hard and it requires all of us to engage and you know when we look at the elon musks of the world making these big decisions for us and not getting taxed a great deal we might think what's the point and you know i just want your listeners to to see actually you know examples like you know everyone from the hotel workers in la the local government that there are ways for all of us to engage and improve the world but it does involve us you know pitching in ourselves yep uh and so that's the message i would like people to take from this born in california um raised in the uk um taught at university of minnesota a phd from harvard uh, so he's been around the globe uh his uh, his book his, his new book is called why politics fails why Politics Fails. His name is Ben Ansel. That's A-N-S-E-L-L. -L. Ben, congrats on the text. Thanks for this conversation. A delight to have you on the program. All the best to you, my friend. Thank you for having me, Tyler. It was great. My great honor.